0: Yes! Here we are, my friends. It's the Robcast, and this is episode 311. And this one is called the Fauci of it all. Because the other day, I was driving down the freeway here in Los Angeles, and went under uh, a, like a freeway underpass that has those huge cement cylinders that hold up the freeway above your head and somebody had crawled up on one of them and spray-painted in giant black letters, ARREST FAUCI. Big, two-foot letters. ARREST FAUCI. And then, two days later, I was on my bicycle riding home from Backyard Bowls, where I got my acai bowl, and uh, I passed a guy... Uh, I was on the street, he was on the sidewalk coming the other way, and he had a gray T-shirt on, and the font went across the chest in an arc like a college jersey or a team jersey, and in big letters, his shirt said Fauci. Like, you know, like Team Fauci. I'm on Team Fauci. So here in Los Angeles, within a couple of days of each other, I saw arrest Fauci and basically... I'm on Team Fauci. That about sums up this moment. Does it not? Any of you feel what I'm feeling? The great wedge, the split that is upon us, the madness, the disinformation, the rejection of science, the acceptance of science and facts and reason and rationality, the complete disregard for the larger, greater good, and then people... Taking great steps to be careful for the greater good. We've had the breaking apart of friendships. How many of you heard this line? Someone said, I can't even talk to them anymore. Uh, I've talked to people in their 70s who have said that their friend group that's been friends for 40, 50 years has split right down the middle. Uh, how many of you have had this feeling like, What happened to so and so? I feel like they lost their mind. And then, of course, all of the YouTube clips being sent around, filled with nonsensical information that's often just plain dumb. (laughs) Yeah, Did I summarize this moment adequately? Arrest Fauci over here, and then over here you have Team Fauci. This is what I mean by the Fauci of it all. So let's explore this, but first... I, at the end of this month, get to go back out and start tour. Portland and Seattle, you're going to be the first stops on the all-new Everything is Spiritual tour. The first three cities were going to be Denver, Oklahoma City, and Austin, but those have been postponed due to Delta variant coronavirus insanity, complications, and madness. Ugh, I know. I'm just, ugh. You know that feeling, right? So those of you in Denver, uh, OKC and Austin, uh, I'm so sorry about the complications you've already received. Those of you who got tickets, all the info on the new dates. Um, Denver, you're going to be in December, and then Oklahoma City and Austin will be February. We just had to because of uh, all of the complications that are in the air, which just breaks my heart, but it just means our grand reunion will be postponed, which means Portland on September 24th, and Seattle on September 25th, you're the first stops on this tour. I've never done a, a tour like this. Um, so this is like the third Everything is Spiritual tour, but there's a book, so it's like the fourth, I don't know what to say the version, installment of it, iteration. Um, and I've never tried anything like this. Uh, honestly, not doing what I do, which is gathering with people like you in a room, uh, has gutted me. It's been very, very, very difficult to, as Kristen uh, said the other day, she said, you get like your energy, like you're here to bodies in a room, do what you do, and you haven't been able to do that for a year and a half. Uh, and that's a source of life. And when she put it that way, I was like, God, you're right. Um, so this has been... Uh, just agonizing at some level, but it's also... I probably should do some Robcasts on this at some point. Um, it's also taken to me in, into new territory, and I found myself reimagining how to even do a live event. As opposed to walking out, I speak, and then I walk off the stage. Uh, is there some other way to think about this? So I've had this idea... And uh, last week, I tried out this new idea for thirty people in a backyard at my friend Phil and Jen's house. My friends uh, uh, invited a bunch of their friends, and I went. I drove an hour away and tried out this new idea. And I'm telling you, I haven't been that nervous. Oh God, it's (laughs) it's been like as. I swear I was as nervous as I've ever been um, and for 30 people in a backyard in Costa Mesa. But um, I tried out something and it's like you have these deep, uh, a sense, a hunch, a guiding that there's something there's something new that wants to be given expression. And it was, uh, yeah, it was... It was some, It was this feeling like, oh, we are on to something. It was a little wobbly. It was a little rickety, but it also had some magic. So the fact that at the end of this month, I get to go out and start this new tour. Portland, Seattle, seriously, prepare thyself. And then, um, oh, man. Then Detroit, Chicago, Columbus, New York, Washington, Atlanta, Nashville, San Francisco, Denver... Coming your way, yeah. So uh, tickets are at my site, and um, oh, that's going to be a moment to be back in a room, all of us, and yeah, yeah. What more? I mean, I could say so much more about that. But now, what we're going to talk about is the Fauci of it all, because this moment, uh, this thing in the air, this great split, division, wedge, that it's almost like with each new day, we find new layers in which we've become split. And what is that? And can it be explained? And how do you respond to it? And what's going on here? So let me back way up. Let me back way up to the late 70s, early 80s. I grew up in Okemos, which is a suburb of Lansing, which is in the center of the state of Michigan. And my dad, uh, as I've talked about before, um, was a judge. He was a local judge, he was a district judge, Then he was a circuit judge. Then later in the late 80s, 87, he became a federal judge. But for for most of my youth, he was a local judge. And I remember every morning he put on a suit, and he talked often about how much he loved his work. He would often say to me, he's like, I love going into work. He used to say to me all the time, the greatest gift you can give yourself is to love your work. That one stuck with me. That, that, that did something to me. But he had this view of being a judge, that without rule of law, without some order, without the vulnerable being protected, and those who have committed a crime being properly prosecuted and tried... He said, without that, a whole society falls apart. And he had this sense, this very, I was going to say old school, but I actually, it, it, we actually need it more than ever. He had this sense of being a public servant. Uh, like, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had this deep sense that his job was to be a public servant. So when he ran for office, I, remember, I don't remember the 1972 campaign, but I do remember the 1978 campaign because I campaigned with him. I, we, we would go to these public events, and I would watch him shake hands with every single person in the place. I remember we would have parties um, to make yard signs. Back in those days, yard signs pre-internet was how you got the word out that you were running for office. So bell for circuit judge. I mean, I remember stapling together... In our barn, we'd make these assembly lines and volunteers would come and make all these yard signs and load them up in trucks and then take them out and put them in people's yards. That's all. This all shaped me, this sense of public service that you, you get educated, you build up some level of skill or expertise in order to give yourself to the common good. And if that sounds idealistic or it sounds naive or, or something, I would I would just reflect back to you. Imagine how deep the cynicism has gone. That talking about how my dad talked almost sounds sort of antiquated. And yet something within you was like, "Oh God, wouldn't it be amazing if that's how people saw it?" So uh, there were the court clerks. There was the stenographer Kevin who took down everything that was said in a trial. There were the schedulers. There were when I would. Uh, step into my dad's world, there was this whole world of people who had these government jobs who did what they did because it helped make the world go round. That's the best way I can say it. I can remember... uh, And then later, when... uh, This would have been like in the 2000s, later when he was a federal judge, the cases started to get... There were always... Um, death threats. That was a thing that was like, I, I grew up with knowing there were people who who wanted to harm him on a regular basis. Letters were sent, threats were made because of somebody he'd put in jail or something. But then uh, he began to do trials involving the drug cartels. And that's when um, the cartel trials, everything just went up a notch. Um, and I was out of the house by then. But, that, but then I do remember 2004, maybe 2005, uh, Father's Day, he and my mom and my family came to our house. Kristen and I had everybody over to our house in Michigan for Sunday lunch to celebrate Father's Day. And because of a huge trial he was doing at the time and the amount of security concerns and death threats, there was a suburban with uh, security guards, uh, federal marshals, Parked in our driveway, and I remember the, like these two guys were spending their Sunday afternoon on Father's Day in the driveway of my house, um, protecting my dad. so I grew up, there were these people uh, who who kept people safe, who worked behind the scenes to bring some order and stability to things. I remember going back to the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, I wasn't actually going to tell the story, but then I was telling my friend about this episode, and Brent, and Brent was like, dude, you got to tell that Corvette story. I remember in the late 70s, early 80s, um, living in the heart of the Midwest, um, the, the ultimate status symbol was a Corvette. Like a Corvette was like, God, that was like, you were, you know, that was a car. That was the car of cars. And I remember my dad saying to me, uh, like, this would have been early, I probably was 10, 12, 13. I remember him saying to me, because he loved Corvettes, but he was like, you know, a Corvette's, well, it's too expensive, but on on a government salary. But I remember him also saying to me, yeah, can you imagine if I drove a Corvette? He's like, I would never want to break trust with the public. I remember him saying I was elected to serve the people. So can you imagine if I showed up in a Corvette, what message that would send? Elect me and then I'll drive a Corvette. Like, he's like, oh, I I would never, uh, I would never, he drove like an old, he drove a pickup for most of my upbringing. He had a, he called it a bell blue pickup. But uh, for him, there was like a sacred trust that he had with the, what would you say, the people, the citizensry the voters, that he would never want to betray by making it look like he was, whatever, profiting off it or anything like that. Like, words like profit or revenue or even getting a raise, um, all those were just weren't words um, that I ever heard in our home, because that just wasn't, like, the thing he was doing. No, I mean, business is wonderful, but in our home, there was, like, this you're a trusted public servant, and that's like a, a sacred, almost like holy thing that you're doing for the greater good. Uh, and the reason why I tell you all this, um, because I I I hope it sounds a little nostalgic. You know what I mean? It sounds a little old, almost like a wait, another time, another place. Because, uh, that's actually. That actually helps me get to the Fauci of it all. Now, of course, you you can look back. Of course, the people uh, that I interacted with, of course, there were flaws in that system. I mean, of course, lots of people in those years went to jail for nonviolent drug possession of drugs that now you can buy in multiple stores in my neighborhood. I can see them from the end of my driveway, all the weed stores. So obviously, that system put a lot of people specifically from minority communities behind bars for nonviolent possession of things that are now legal. So, so let's not, obviously you, you understand on this, we're not talking about all this as like some sort of perfect airtight system. I'm talking about the impulse behind it. And even now, if you think about the industrial prison system, if you think about the, the giant lobbyist machinery, like a giant sort of leech on the underside of government like it's not that this whole system is somehow airtight and perfect but the impulse the spirit that's what i'm getting at this spirit of giving yourself in your work to the greater good that got imprinted on me at an early early age there were these people who gave themselves to making the whole thing run, to justice, to health, to education, to the environment, to fairness and accountability in business. There were people who this is what they did. Now, what year do you think Dr. Anthony Fauci went to work for the government? What year? You've seen Dr. Fauci for a year and a half now all over the news. What year did he go to work for the government? Don't know? (laughs) I didn't either. I had to look it up. He went to work for the National Institute of Health in 1968. Dr. Fauci has been working as a public servant since 1968. He is now the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He is the chief medical advisor to the president. He doesn't make laws. He doesn't make policies. He advises. He takes the data. He takes what we did, because there is, there is no government apart from us. We, as a people, in, in each country, we decided we ought to have somebody who takes all of the best and latest information about health, science, medicine and summarizes it, explains it, and advises those who are making the decisions so that we have all of the latest and best information and wisdom so that people can be kept safe. So Dr. Fauci, he's been like AIDS, Ebola, MERS, SARS, that brother... Has been in the government giving himself for the health of the people since 1968. He has seen it all. That is, what's that? Nixon, Reagan, Carter, Ford, Bush one, Clinton, Bush two, Obama, the former president. Like, think of how long that man has been working and giving himself and accumulating wisdom and knowledge for the well-being of the greater good. Arrest that guy? What? Arrest that guy, seriously. Come on. Come on. Now, this insidious movement that somehow thinks... This man is part of the problem. Notice how that particular movement... Ask yourself this question. Who else does this movement disregard and despise? Well, think about how the same people who would say arrest Fauci also refuse to accept the results of the 2020 presidential election. Well, who counts votes? Who actually counts the votes? Uh, Good, humble, hardworking Americans who volunteer their time. They volunteer their time to count votes through the night. And sometimes this goes on for days because of mail-in and late ballots, etc., Sometimes this process requires people to work day after day after day without pay. Why do these people do this? Uh, As an act of service to their country. Yeah, it's actually an astonishingly integrous process. And obviously every single court case that was brought to challenge the results, every single case, including many brought before Republican judges, were dismissed because of lack of evidence. Every single one. So when Sister S is the same movement that has serious problems with Fauci also has problems with this process of people who volunteer themselves lots of hours to give integrity to election process, who else does this movement seem to despise? Well, you have a massive world of healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, physicians, assistants, hospital administrators who have said, please mask up, please get vaccinated, please maintain social distance because we have been working in hospitals that are jammed full for a year and a half and we're exhausted. And in light of a healthcare system that has pushed way, way, way beyond globally, what can be handled this movement continues to disregard basic precautions. And obviously we know right now 99.5% of people who are filling emergency rooms and hospital beds right now are unvaccinated, pushing doctors and nurses who are already a year and a half into this even farther. Fauci, election workers, humble, skilled healthcare workers who are like, please follow these basic precautions, we're exhausted. Who else, by the way? Well, on January 6th, you had a riot, and insurrection, in which people smashed windows, broke down doors, physically assaulted people who guarded the Capitol. Uh, And when the people who guard the Capitol to keep it safe, a number of them Republicans, went on the witness stand, to describe what it was like to try and defend the Capitol from people who were telling them to their face, we are here to kill you, we are going to destroy you. Some of them had nooses, some of them had bear spray and mace. Those guards were completely disregarded by a large movement of people who actually were very disdainful and disregarding of the sacrifice they made. So not to draw this out too much, but do you see the pattern, my friends? What you are seeing right now across the board is a flagrant, blatant disregard for the actual humble public servants who help make the world go round. Isn't it interest not interesting, how heartbreaking is it to see the people who talk the most about being patriots and Americans openly disregard and disdain the very people who actually make a country run? And above all, what's your, oh, 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 one more. Notice what's happening right now all across the country. And those of you from, you know, outside of America, you know, you, you've seen these same impulses at times in your own places, but you've also, because I know you, you, you follow this as well as we have, notice the massive number of restricting voting measures that are being put in place, which clearly are about making it harder and harder for a particular American citizen to vote. Once again, a disdain for all of the everyday people who serve and vote and help make this country run. Now, above all else, what you see is a disdain for the government. But the same person who disdains and keeps talking about the government, capital T, capital G, the government, um, did that person eat today? Yes, they did. How did they get that food? Well, they probably drove to the grocery store on roads. How do we have roads? The government. Did that person shower today? Probably. Who sorted out how they had water running into the pipes in their house? Somebody in the government. Now, there's an irrationality lurking in all this. You with me on that? There just below the surface in all of this is a striking, shocking irrationality. So let's follow that and into just one area. Because what you are seeing is large-scale resentment. What we are in the midst of, is a massive explosion of resentment. It actually simmers, and then it explodes. What we are all living through is what happens when resentment metastasizes and gains a head of steam. And then it develops a communal collective spirit that seeks in many ways to simply destroy everything in its path. Now, let us pull apart resentment... And as always, as you know, anything political, anything about this moment, you're trying to understand the moment, but you're also learning to understand the moment by finding it within yourself. Because if you can find any of this in yourself, it helps explain why others would be doing what they're doing. So if any of you have over the past year and a half or over the past couple of months been like, God, why are they doing that? Why would they say that? Does that person realize how dumb they sound? The real art in polarization when you find yourself divided and you find yourself most flummoxed, I love that word. When you find yourself most flummoxed or confused, or just like, I don't understand why that person would believe that way, vote that way, support that candidate, think that email me that YouTube clip. What you're actually trying to do is if you can find that impulse somewhere within yourself generally what you're seeing is that impulse simply magnified and unchecked in another. Here's what I mean. Things aren't how they were. I I tried to get that as Captain Obvious as I could, as just so straightforward. Things aren't how they were. The world has changed. It's more diverse. It's more global. Much is being laid bare, the systemic racism baked into the very origins of America, uh, the disruptive power of technology, which is always how technology has been, but, it, but it's amped up more than ever, uh, the place of America in the world. America just lost uh, an 18-year war in Afghanistan, lost after spending trillions of dollars So, things aren't how they were. Things have changed. Number two, change is a form of loss, and loss is a form of change. So, when things change, and it may be a wonderful, good change, nevertheless, you have lost how things were because things are no longer how they were, they're how they are now. So, that is actually a very subtle form of loss. Loss, when you had something and it was taken from you or it leaves you, that's a form of change. Change is a form of loss. Loss is a form of change. Here why this is, here's why this is huge. Loss, whether it's just a perceived loss or it's actually a real loss, generally leads to one of two responses. The person either digs in and closes down and resists the change, and demands that that which they lost be returned to them. So that becomes then energetically a desperate desire to retrieve what was. Now now think about the energetic imprint of that. One One of the two general responses to loss, one of those responses, is to desperately desire a retrieval of what was. Just make it like it used to be again. Just bring back those days. So notice it fundamentally entrenches itself in a retroactive reaching back. Can we just change what happened and make it go back? The other response to change is an opening up, no matter how, and often very disruptive, and very unknown, and and very disorienting, an opening up to the assumption that there's something new here, and we will find our way into that newness together. Now, sometimes, and I say perceived sense of loss, uh, sometimes it's legitimate. Sometimes all the factories shut down, and there aren't any more jobs, and that's real. And sometimes it doesn't appear as though anybody in power cares. Yeah, that's real. That's real. Sometimes the sense of loss is white people who used to have control and power, and things are more diverse than they used to be. And so they're saying things like, "Is anybody not recognized their country like me? Uh, things have changed. And Actually, what has been lost is a sense of dominance, power, control, and familiarity. Now, this word resentment is huge to understanding this moment because the word resentment has its roots uh, in the French word sentir, S E N T I R. It's where we get the word sentiment, sentimental. Sentir means to feel. So, resentment is essentially to feel over and over and over again, instead of a feeling coming, almost like reaching its peak and then fading, resentment is what happens when the feeling, when you get stuck in the loop of the feeling, and it just loops and loops and loops. Do you know anybody like this? Who somebody broke up with them, somebody took something from them, something changed, and it's almost like they never moved past it, yeah, that's resentment. It's, it's re-senteering, it's re-feeling, just over and over, uh, like a record needle, just caught in the groove, in the scratch, and just can't get out of it. There's this great line in the New Testament, the letter to the Hebrews, don't let a root of bitterness grow up. That's what resentment does, that's what bitterness does. If, if, you, if you allow it to catch and stick, if you get stuck in that loop, it doesn't plateau, it grows. If resentment is left unchecked, it relentlessly expands. If the person doesn't feel the loss, feel the pain, work it through take that energy and channel it into something, if there isn't the healthy experience of it, which, which always demands the actual feeling of it. You can't deny the experience. But if that resentment gets stuck in the loop and that root of bitterness grows, well, it will relentlessly expand. Now, It's important to understand that because resentment, at its core, generally has an irrational underbelly to it. Here's what I mean. Have you ever been in an argument with a partner, friend? Uh, Have you ever been in an argument and you're resenting them for something? Now, Now go back to that moment when you were resentful? Generally, you're thinking about some past perceived loss or hurt or slight or wound. So notice how it's generally what happens when you're in a, like when you're in a fight or an argument is suddenly you're, you become aware of the buildup of all the times you think, even if it was just one or two. All you need is a little bit of history to make a case. But think about what you said when you were filled with resentment. When you when you were filled with resentment, was that peak rationality? (laughs) I'm laughing because of all the times I've been when I've had resentment. Have you ever said something at the height of of resentment and you were just like, God, I sounded so dumb? (laughs) Right? It's like you caught yourself being super mega stupid. Yeah. 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 Have you ever found yourself in an argument making a case? And as you're making the case, you're realizing that you just sound like an idiot and you have no case <laughs> and you're watching. And the other person is just letting you sort of self-amolate, just set yourself on fire. Uh, yeah. I have a friend who this has happened to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Resentment is fundamentally irrational. Why? Because re refeel. re-feel. It's a feeling as much as anything. Sure, you can make a case for what you lost, or, but it's a feeling before anything else it does not sit in your bones in the intellect. Yeah, you know, your resentments, you don't store them in your brain. You may have memory, you may be able to m- try to make your case for why they, but it stores in the body, right? Think about the people who you have you've had resentment for. You feel it. Like it's like a a cold, it's a warmth, it's a sting, it's an ache. It's a butterflies, but the nasty kind of butterflies with horns in your guts. Yeah. Yeah. So those of you wondering, how come there's so much disinformation? Why are people believing such nonsense, such lies? People purporting to be doctors on YouTube saying unbelievably stupid things about horse tranquilizers or whatever, and worm, whatever, and it whatever. Yeah. Just inf- yeah. It's irrational. It's irrational. Yeah. Yeah. Resentment generally has an irrational underbelly. Now, think about the dominant energies of resentment. When you feel resentment, what are you feeling? You are feeling the pain of what you perceive to be lost. It's about you and what you lost. Now, think about energetically. Are the arrows going towards you or away from you? They're going towards you. Yeah. Yeah. Resentment unchecked generally becomes all about us. Yeah, a longing for what we had. Generally, resentment unchecked, unexamined, not given its proper expression and worked through in a healthy way, generally what involves is a regression to me. Trace and I, at the end of last year, Robcast's, I don't know what they were, 290-something maybe, talked about uh, the pattern of expansion. Me, we, everybody. In times of loss, change, and pain, people generally move into greater connection with others or a regression deeper into the self. So imagine if you have profound resentment boiling in your bones, and someone comes along and speaks to it. They are as resentful as you. Imagine if somebody comes along, and instead of inviting you to imagine new possibilities, they confirm that you've been wronged, and they feed that resentment, and not only feed that resentment, but this person publicly names who wronged you and who took that from you. Oh, see, resentment often has, makes a person feel disempowered. So when somebody comes along and says, you've, you've been wronged, you've had things taken away, and they speak to you from the place of resentment, and they speak to your resentment, and this person appears to be empowered, God, you'll vote for them. It doesn't matter if they have no idea what they're talking. It doesn't matter if they have no idea how to run a government. Does it? You'll vote for them. Yeah, because it's all about you. And if somebody can connect you with others who are equally resentful, and now it's about us, no wonder that would gain a head of steam. No wonder that would metastasize in a thousand different directions. We have been wronged, and we have had something taken from us, and we are going to take it back. Yeah, think of how powerful, that story. And somebody rationally pointing out, actually, have you noticed this? Actually, you don't care. Once again, resentment is profoundly irrational. Now, by the way, we're just getting started here. (laughs) Now, let's go back to the Fauci of it all. Because one of the first casualties of resentment is imagination. So going way back to what I saw in the late 70s and early 80s. Good people just trying to serve the greater good through public service, working for the government. If you are consumed with yourself in what you believe has been taken from you, it's going to be increasingly difficult for you to fathom that somebody else would simply be trying to serve the greater good. Can you see how one of the first casualties of resentment is imagination? A person becomes so consumed with self and what they feel they are entitled to, it's the opposite of giving a good, generous gift. It is an entitled demand that something be given back to that person. When you are consumed with what you believe you have lost, the idea of giving a good gift is a thousand miles from your mind. So I would argue on a large scale, literally tens of millions of people around the world, but especially in the United States of America, simply can't conceive that somebody would be just trying to serve the greater good. They, they literally can't imagine it because their own sense of self is so shattered they can't imagine simply, quietly, humbly going about giving a good gift to the greater good. Do you see the crisis? So, so th- those folks might talk about being citizens and patriots, but what they do s- is systematically disdain those who actually make the whole thing run. They drive on the roads and use the water, and they read the ingredients— on the side of the packaging in the store, which the government requires, and then talk about how horrible the government is. Yeah, yeah. Now let's trace this a little bit farther. I assume you have noticed that the people who refuse to wear masks, who, refuse, who keep talking about their rights, endlessly talk about their rights, but never talk about responsibilities. Because it's rights and responsibilities in tandem, correct? Historically, you talked about your rights and responsibilities as a whole. But when you have been subsumed by resentment, and it's all about you, you conveniently drop your responsibilities and only talk about your rights. It's an adolescent rage that refuses to grow up and step into its responsibilities. So it endlessly talks about its right to not have to wear a mask, but never talks about the responsibility we have for the health of the greater good. Yeah, so anytime you anywhere hear somebody talk about rights, simply add, and responsibilities, correct? What are your responsibilities here? What are your responsibilities? Yeah, that's what's happening right now, is these two have become split and they were never intended to be split. You have rights, yes, you have rights, so that you can take part in your responsibilities. Oh, secondly, let's talk for a moment about the psychology of a conspiracy theory as we explore the Fauci of it all. When the world has changed, and you have found that bewildering, disempowering, and disorienting, when you are struggling to make sense of what's happening, Notice how a conspiracy theory functions. A conspiracy theory says that I have a truth that other people don't see. Do you see how when a person feels disempowered and disoriented by the loss that is a form of change and the change is a form of loss, what a conspiracy does in that disempowerment is it provides a false sense of empowerment. It's a way for the person to irrationally make sense of this moment. Well, you see, insider information, having a secret, believing that you see what's actually happening while the masses are missing it, is one of the easiest shortcuts to avoid the disorientation of the moment. So you can see how a conspiracy theory has a universal appeal because it speaks to the disempowerment and the disillusion and says, oh, no, 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 you, you, it props up the false sense by saying, oh, no, no you get it, the other people don't. Yeah. Oh, yeah, by the way, if we're talk about conspiracy theory, we should also, side note, talk about fear. Notice, oftentimes, the arrest Fauci movement, the disdain for actual humble public service, also comes with it in regards to coronavirus and the pandemic. We refuse to live in fear. We're not going to wear masks. We're not going to take precautions. We're not going to get vaccinated. We refuse to live in fear. Now, this is fascinating because if you think through this movement politically, the entire movement is built around fear, building walls, demonizing the other, terrified of actual objective study, of the origins of this country and the horrible injustices and racism baked into the very substructure of this country and its origins. Yeah, the people who talk the most about not living in fear, entire structures and political ideologies are built often on very little but fear. Yeah, will you always agree with the government? No, of course not. It's childish. That's actually what makes things better. The push and pull and friction and loyal opposition. The ironing sharpen iron. Yeah, that's all, that's all part of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the way, you can't be angry with institutions. So the government. No, the people. People. This is why whenever you meet somebody who's, uh, the, who's, who's filled with rage about the government, uh, the business world, the system uh whatever the religion, the church, whatever it is, these people will will stay locked in their resentment because you can't properly move through the emotion of a faceless institution. To forgive, to participate, to re-engage, you actually have to have names. You can't have faceless entities. Yeah, you 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 actually have to talk about flesh and blood people. There is no the government apart from actual human beings. Yeah, so my friend, this is, I mean, obviously we're just exploring one dimension of it. In some ways, this is the crisis of the moment, a failure to imagine humble acts of public service simply for the greater good. For many people, our communal life, and especially in the ethos of the former president, everything is transaction. What can you do for me? Everything. The sacred and the holy are exchanged for the profane, which is an endless series of transactions. Nothing's ever simply done as a good, generous gift. And so what's happened is, as there were roughly four years there of relentless assault on the idea, the ideal that a person can live beyond their own agendas, goals, and motivations. But this is possible. It's happening all around us. A number of you in healthcare, in education, in government, in business, you know, you, you quietly go about doing your work. So for those of you who, who find this, find your cynicism about humanity at an all-time high, if you have found yourself, God, questioning the very fabric of the whole thing, it's more important than ever that your eyes are open for those people around you. And you will find them if your eyes are open, who's simply going about doing their work to help the whole thing run. I think back to those early images that I've only actually been exploring the past couple of months when I kept trying to name, what is this thing? Why do these people, they, they seem to, this pattern here is very consistent. They disregard humble public servants. What is that? Oh, I remember this probably, I don't know, a month ago, I had like a, oh, got it. When you're filled with resentment, you become so deeply cynical, you lose the imagination that other people might just actually be trying to help out and to use their talent and wisdom to just simply help out. You, you, you lose the sense that that's actually possible when it is. Yeah, the Fauci of it all. And perhaps, I mean, perhaps the pain of this moment will actually inspire. I've, I'm beginning to, you're beginning to see it, a whole new world of people to step up and volunteer and run for office. People who aren't owned by corporations, people who don't see everything as a transaction. Uh, A lot has been laid bare about the transactional nature, and yet we also are seeing in the Fauci of it all people who have simply since 1968 been doing their best to serve us well. Yeah. they should be commended. Yeah. Yeah, I live in the state of California, the state of California registers and renews over 30 million car licenses every year. So there are all sorts of jokes about the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles. You probably have Secretary of State wherever you live, the, the place where you go to get your driver's license and to get your thing renewed, unless you're doing it online now. But uh, there's all sorts of jokes about the inefficiency. But let's just pause for a second. In the state I live in, the system that somebody built, And nobody's really making a lot of money. That's just public servants built a system that pretty, pretty efficiently registers and renews over 30 million licenses. So you can can point out the flaws in things. You can easily find things that could be better, things that are just flat out broken, things that are corrupt. That's easy. That's all around us. You can also put on a different set of lenses, And find yourself astounded that it even runs as much as it does. Yeah, 30 million cars. That's actually astonishing. So yeah, of course things could be more efficient. It could be more. Yeah, and so that's part of the difference between disempowerment and empowerment. Some people just stand around talking about what's broken, and other people set out to do something about it. Yeah, yeah. One more thought. Resentment generally has no new ideas because the first casualty in resentment is imagination. So what you'll often notice is resentment when it simmers and boils, when it marinades. What resentment generally does is it assaults a sense of imagination, and only has focus on one thing, which is the destruction of whoever it perceives took the thing from them. So what you'll notice is a profound lack of new creation when a person is filled with resentment. And when that resentment metastasizes, when it becomes a collective communal spirit, when tens of millions of people have it stoked by... Fox News, and all of the other outlets, it actually becomes a sort of spirit. It becomes a toxic, lethal, destructive spirit to our life together. Because obviously everything is spiritual. All of this ultimately becomes animating energies. So one of the huge, huge postures that it's important for a person to have now is new creation, new creation, new creation. If you find yourself in one of those awkward discussions, when you find yourself interacting with people who are uh, consumed by this particular destructive animating spirit of resentment, and you want, how do I even talk to them? Sometimes you can't. But sometimes the most powerful thing you can do is simply say, tell me the new ideas about how we can move forward together. Tell me what new ideas you have about caring for the earth. Telling me what new ideas you have about how to make it better and easier for people to be empowered to start small businesses. Tell me what ideas you have about educating people about the origins of our country and, and what it's like for other people to make their way in the world. Tell me what new ideas you have about more sustainable ways of living, better architecture, better education. Tell me what new ideas. because yeah, Because that's... That's, yeah, new creation, new creation. And what you'll notice is the kind of movement that would spray paint, arrest Fauci, have no new ideas. Notice very carefully in the news, notice the ideas. There, there, there's an, a, a shocking absence of news, other, of ideas, other than trying to make things how they used to be, restricting voter access, building a wall. It's generally the only ideas about, are about trying to retrieve some e- idealized past. But spirit, spirit only knows new creation. What's the new thing that's emerging? What's that? What's the new thing we're being invited into? the new thing will always be a little wobbly. It'll always rattle and it'll always have uh, some squeaks, right? Yeah, it'll, it'll, yeah, it could be a little ugly, yeah. Yeah, diversity alone, all sorts of new stories being told, people interacting with each other who haven't interacted before. Yeah, yeah, of course, uh, of course, it'll have all of its strange, awkward moments. Yeah, some might simply, some new ideas simply might not work. Oh, okay, that's the cost of innovation, yeah. But new creation, new creation, that's, yeah, that's the game we're playing. So one of the ways to keep yourself sane in the midst of the great wedge, one of the, one of the ways to keep yourself tuned in to the Fauci of it all is to cut through everything with uh, what new imagination is there here? for a new world we can all move into together. And you will quickly find out who's actually serious about a new day and who just wants to stay stuck in the same old loops of resentment, regression, and destruction. Yeah. Thank God for the Fauci's, the Fauci of it all, all you Fauci's out there quietly going about making the place run. Thank God for all those people over the years I got to interact with. I think about Sue and Kevin and Kim. I think about, these are people who, when I would visit my dad, who worked with him for years, the real thing, the real deal. Yeah. By the way, one last story. I used to go visit my dad's. nice. We'd go to lunch. So I'd go to the federal courthouse. This was back in uh, my late 20s. I'd go to the federal courthouse, and there were guards with, like, metal detector and people with guns, and you had to put your stuff on a conveyor belt. Like, it was, like, serious, even to get into the lobby of the federal building, let alone the judge on whatever, the fourth floor. No one can get up there. Um, and you can all imagine the number of people who, and the number of death threats, and the number of violent criminals who had been and with family members like that um, that place was on high alert and sometimes I'd go in there in the middle of the day jeans t-shirt I just walk in and be like yeah who, uh, who are you here for uh, yeah I'm just here to see judge Bell and I just want to get some time with the judge Bell and just watch every guard just like come to life like hold on it and they would Oh, God, they would pat me down. All my metal I'd have to put on the conveyor belt. And then uh they'd ask for ID, and there'd always be this moment <laughs> when they'd check my ID and realize I was the judge's son. <laughs> and suddenly I went from, like, Unabomber, DEFCON terrorist alert to, like, all of them laughing. <laughs> like, oh, you had us... Oh, God. Good times. Yeah. Yeah. So, thank God I saw that and had that example. Whatever area, however you're going to give your energies, you hopefully, quietly, humbly going about giving yourself for the good of the whole. That spirit we need more than ever. You with me on that? Yeah, that, my friends, is the Fauci of it all. Grace and peace and love to all of you.